Welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast, the award-winning podcast that brings you the latest information on breast cancer research, treatments, side effects, and survivorship issues through expert interviews, as well as personal stories from people affected by breast cancer. Here's your host, BreastCancer.org Senior Editor, Jamie DiPolo. Hello, thanks for listening. Dr. Jennifer Litton is a board-certified medical oncologist and professor of breast medical oncology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, where she is vice president of clinical research. Dr. Litton joins us today to talk about some of the most interesting and immediately applicable breast cancer research presented at the 2021 American Society of Clinical Oncology Virtual Annual Meeting, which was held June 4th through 8th. Dr. Litton, welcome to the podcast. It's always nice to talk to you. Oh, thank you. It's nice to talk to you too, Jamie. So I'm so excited you're going to help us kind of sort through all the stuff that was presented at ASCO because there's always a lot. And I know when I look through it, I get a little bit overwhelmed. But um, in my opinion, some of the most exciting results came from the Olympia trial, which showed that Limparza or Oloparev offered benefits for early stage breast cancer in people who have a BRCA1 or a BRCA2 mutation. And I know that you personally have done research on Telzena, which is the other PARP inhibitor used to treat breast cancer. So would you mind talking a little bit about the Olympia trial results and, and what do those mean for people with a mutation in early stage disease? Absolutely. So the Olympia trial was a phase three randomized clinical trial of um, 1,836 patients. And uh, the patients had to have a germline BRCA1 or 2 mutation. And as trials like this are built, there's definite timelines where they look at the data and they decide, you know, do they, do they keep going or is the data so telling at a certain point that they should stop it and just release the results. And that's, that's really what happened with the Olympia study. So the eligibility is a little bit complicated, but it really was a way to be very inclusive of all patients with um, early stage breast cancer and a germline BRCA1 or 2 mutation. And so they split it up into people who had surgery first, followed by chemotherapy versus patients who had chemotherapy first, followed by surgery. So if you had surgery first, if you had triple negative breast cancer, if you had a node, a, you know, biopsy proven disease in one of the lymph nodes or the tumor was two centimeters or greater, or if it was hormone receptor positive and there were four lymph nodes involved, you were, you were eligible. If you got the chemotherapy first, if there was any residual disease at all, invasive disease, if you had triple negative breast cancer, or if you had a hormone receptor positive, they looked at um, different factors, the size of the tumor, the, the, how um, aggressive the grade was, and they had a score. And if it was greater than that, then, then you could be randomized to one year of elaborate versus observation. And, um, and with about three years, there was a big difference of invasive disease-free survival from improved from 77.1% to 85.9%, and then distant disease-free survival, so stopping the cancer from spreading somewhere else in the body at three years, was um, improved from 804 to 87.5% of the uh, people who participated. And given that is a big difference, the study uh, was stopped and it was reported 
It was also published at the same time in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I think this is really practice changing for patients with germline BRCA mutations. Um, and especially what the, the um, investigators did is really look for those patients who had a high risk of relapse and what could they do to change that. One of the other things that uh, was presented, and I did present this trial uh, for full disclosure, was the Neotala trial. And it was looking at something in a slightly different way. And that was instead of um, chemotherapy, could there be a group of patients identified that if you just gave them that pill, that talazoprim, one pill per day for six months and no chemo and took them to surgery, could you get responses that were similar to that of uh, chemotherapy? And the trial um, was actually truncated and, and um, stopped after halfway due to nothing to do with the trial, the patients, the efficacy, anything, but just a decision by the company who was going to go a different way. But I think what the trial did show was a significant response with pathologic complete response rates very similar to what we see to polychemotherapy because it was a small trial. It did not cross the what they had hoped for the statistical significance, but you know, I think showed that there was a group of patients who, when they took them to surgery, there was no uh, invasive cancer left. And I think that uh, these two studies with the same, you know, with the, the same class of drugs really looks at two ways that we're thinking about research is how do you pick out those patients that have a more aggressive disease and where and how should we add more? That's the Olympia trial. And, and then is there a way that we can um, more target and tailor the trial to try to um, get the same results, but maybe not expose the patient to as much? And that's the Neotala. Um, so I think that you're going to see a lot of work in both ways, instead of just giving everyone the same drug the same way, you know, I think we need to be much more thoughtful of how we develop these trials, these drugs, and, and to make sure that, you know, we're not just adding more and more and more, um, but really identifying the patients that could, could best be helped. Okay. That's all, that is very interesting and very promising. And it actually raises two more questions to me. Do you think that these two PARP inhibitors that um, there may be applications put in to allow them to be, you know, to have the indication be for early stage breast cancer? Well, I think that with the Olympia trial, I certainly hope so. It was a randomized, well-run phase three trial that I think met all of the independent statistical uh, set points and I think is practice changing for someone with a high risk early breast cancer and a germline BRCA mutation. Okay. I think that the preoperative alone um, single agent is something that I think further, um, I think we're going to see a lot more research going in that direction as well and expanding that prior to considering that just routinely standard of care. Okay. And I'm also wondering, given these results, do you think we're moving in the direction of sort of immediate genetic testing for a BRCA1, BRCA2 mutation if someone's diagnosed? Because otherwise, right now, at least my understanding is these PARP inhibitors aren't really, it wouldn't be given unless you knew somebody had one of those mutations. 
Exactly. So right now we've looked at PARP inhibitors by themselves for patients who don't have a known germline mutation. The only other group of people that we've routinely shown them to work by themselves is people who maybe don't have the inherited gene, but in their tumor itself, the the gene's not working. And we, we certainly have seen that respond. The other group of people is um, that that have on these big panels, they there are a lot of different mutations that kind of, you know, orbit around BRCA1 and 2, but they're not all BRCA1 and 2, and they don't all respond to PARP inhibitors in this class of drugs the same. There's a lot of research going there, except for, I would say, in my opinion, one group, and it's a very small group of patients who have a PAL-B2 mutation, P-A-L-B2, where this seems to be very um, similar. It's linked um, in its function to BRCA2, and in studies in the metastatic setting, we're seeing very similar results to PARP inhibitors. So I would hope that future studies looking at germline BRCA mutation carriers will also start including uh, patients with PAL-B2 mutations. Um, I don't think we'll It'll be very hard, although I think efforts are ongoing, to have a really large standalone PALB2 mutation carrier study in particular. But um, it is something I think we need to consider as we move forward um, with designing these trials. Okay. Oh, so that goes to your question about right. the about the genetic testing. I really went all the way around that, didn't I? But um, you know, I can only say my personal beliefs on this is that. When we think about patients with metastatic breast cancer, 5% or less of the patients have a germline BRCA mutation. And yes, the vast majority of them we can identify from other hints in their tumor or their family history. But because they had a very effective option in the metastatic setting, most guidelines did warrant that um, you know germline testing should be happening for anyone with metastatic cancer. I think that if you have an aggressive early stage breast cancer and this uh, becomes uh, available and approved, I suspect that we would um, definitely be moving to um, germline uh, testing for early stage breast cancer as well. Okay. But that is my very, that is my personal opinion at that at this point. We'll have to wait to see what all the guidelines uh, feel about that. Sure, of course, of course. And I know that even some of the professional societies have have different ideas about what what should be done when, but it's just it's just interesting to see these um these this particular class of medicines being effective in early stage disease. And so it just got me wondering. Yeah. Um, so were there other studies that that stood out for you, other breast cancer studies that you think are either practice changing or really noteworthy that may have, you know, people are going to see it in their doctor's office or talk about it in their doctor's office soon. It's going to make a difference. Sure. You know, I think in the hormone receptor positive setting of breast cancer, we had two updates on the Mona Lisa 3 and the Paloma 3 trials. These were both trials for patients with metastatic breast cancer and had endocrine therapy plus a CDK inhibitor. And uh, that was uh, palpocyclib and ribocyclib in the two different studies. And, you know, these are, have been around and um, 
have been approved and are widely used because the progression-free survival of these early trials were so impressive. In fact, I can't think of another group that had such an impressive progression-free survival where we're talking over two years on a single line of therapy in metastatic setting. But these further updates with longer uh, median, you know, for the Paloma 3, it was 73.3 median months uh, follow-up. And we see now a significant overall survival benefit. So I think further solidifying not only, you know, improvement of progression-free survival, but really important and often really hard to prove in metastatic setting is overall survival. I think if you dig down to the data and look at, you know, the time to response to these drugs and the depth of the response, you know, when I first started in oncology, we were all taught that if, you know, the cancer is in an organ like the lungs or the liver, you had to go right away to, to you know, multi-agent chemotherapy. And in fact, I think the, these studies and these further updates solidify for me that they, they really hold their place in the first-line setting for patients and, and regardless of where the metastases may be. Yeah, those were very, very exciting to see that overall survival because I know that always takes longer and longer follow-up and and it's just, you know, it's basically just waiting to see what the data is going to show. So that to me, that's always exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, there was some talk in there too about progression-free survival too and, and, and measuring from the time of randomization to the time they uh, moved on from whatever they got after the trial. And, you know, I think a lot of that was based on some early thoughts that maybe there are some rapid progressors and that maybe they would do even worse. Like they would keep controlled, but then do worse on the back end after you mm-hmm. took them off the CDK inhibitor. And and these trials really showed this that um, that that wasn't the case. So I think it was, um, I think also very helpful for that. I think there's a lot of really exciting drugs in that ER positive metastatic space that are that are um, under investigation. You know, um, different um, in the class of drugs of like fulvestrant, where you know not just blocking estrogen but actually degrading the receptors. I think we're we're seeing multiple phase three trials. So uh, with these drugs, and hopefully we're going to see some new options out there for us to be able to use patients in the next several years. We're looking at um, other um, drugs, circas. So these are highly selective ER alpha covalent antagonists. So another whole new class of endocrine agents that are out there that we can be using. I think that when I think of other trials, you know, obviously I have uh, a lot of interest in immunotherapy we have two drugs in the in the metastatic setting, atezolizumab and pembrolizumab, that um, have been approved, and we have you know several trials: uh, the NeoTrip, the Impassion 031, and the Keynote 522 that all looked in neoadjuvant or preoperative therapy for patients with early stage breast cancer. And although it improved piece, uh, pathologic complete response, the question is: is well, what does that mean for long-term response, and does that really translate into something meaningful for a patient? And the reason that's important is because these immunotherapies really aren't without toxicity. They they can come with it with lifelong things like um, 
requiring thyroid replacement, other endocrinopathies, um, thing, other other side effects that can be severe for a minority of people. But when you do get them, they could be quite severe. And so we want to make sure we're not just adding them without actually adding benefit. Now, we're waiting for the actual report from Keynote 522. We had a press release a little bit saying that the event-free survival was improved, but we haven't seen that data, and we're waiting for that to be presented. But the Gepa Nuevo, which is a European study, did present, it was a small study, 174 patients with triple negative breast cancer, and um, with nabpaclitaxel and dervalimab, um, followed by an anthracycline and duralimab, followed by surgery. And there was an improvement in PCR or pathologic complete response from about 44% to about 53%. But they um, presented the invasive disease-free survival with the median follow-up of 43.7 months. And that did show improvements in three-year survival, distant disease-free survival, and starting to see signals with overall survival. So um, really, also, as we think about pathologic complete response as a surrogate, we may have to rethink how we look at that also when we're talking about immunotherapies where we may see even bigger responses after the fact. Um, so I thought that that was really interesting from that uh, Gepar Nuevo, and we'll wait to see what the larger you know, keynote and the Impassion 31 um, having further follow-up, but the keynote is the one that was really set up to look at that event-free survival. I just want to ask, I just want to make sure, um, the, and I'm probably going to mispronounce it, the Dervalimab, the, the one that starts with yeah. the P, yeah, that is not approved to treat breast cancer yet in the United States, is no, it? It's still under not investigation. Not in the United States. Okay. Yep. Well, I mean, none of those are, are FDA approved in for preoperative chemotherapy. We only have those atezolizumab and um, Pembro in the metastatic setting only. Got it, okay, okay. Um, sorry, go ahead, Ad. What what else exciting happened? <laughs> I'm trying to think. Um, well, you know, there is one study, I, I wanted to ask you about it. I don't know if you saw it. I thought it was interesting because it was, um, it like patients participated and it was about dosing, especially for uh, people who've been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. And the idea is that when the clinical studies are done, it's basically looking at, okay, what's the maximum dose that is effective and can be tolerated? Because I think the thinking has always been more is better, like so much in American life, if one is good, 20 is better. Um, and so this particular study was kind of taking the premise that, well, you know, this is this is often looked at for early stage disease, but with somebody with metastatic disease who may be on this particular medicine for five, 10, however many years, is that dose really appropriate? And it was kind of surveying people with metastatic disease and asking, you know, are you open to a, a dose reduction or at least talking to your doctor about changing the dose? And I just wondered if you saw that and what you thought of it. And if you didn't, that's fine. Um, I was just curious. I'm sure I did. Um, but, you know, I do think, I think this goes into the how, you know, we've traditionally did studies, right? You did a dose escalation until you had too much toxicity, too many toxicities, and then you backed off one dose level. And that's how you just rolled. And 
you know, maybe that was the case for chemotherapy, although we, that's still debatable. Um, and we know like the high dose, you know, stem cell transplant type of things um, did not work um, consistently in breast cancer and are, are not, you know, considered standard uh, for uh, breast cancer. But as we start to think more about these more targeted and designed drugs that are very specific, you know, I think that you're going to see many more of the trials have blood draws and also biopsies. And one of the reasons is, is, is what is the actual biologically active dose? And I think that that's going to be a very important thing to, to look at. If you, if you block a receptor at, you know, dose A, you know, giving dose A plus 20 won't matter if you've already blocked it. Mm -hmm. So, and you might just be gaining toxicity. So I think, you know, how we think about measuring what the dose should be really depends on, are we actually hitting the target that we're now looking at instead of just kind of putting something out there that just kind of hits everything and hopefully the cancer too. Um, and, and really being thoughtful about that. And that's why um, with clinical trials, you'll often see a lot more um, companion uh, information, blood, tissue, things like that, to try to you know, better understand that. We know from patients with, in metastatic cancer that for breast cancer, we've, we've shown that actually you know, some of these aromatase inhibitors, which can have really life-altering side effects for our patients. Sometimes taking a couple week or a month break and restarting can help reset some of the side effects. But I think that it's a, a reasonable um, and important conversation to have with your caregiver as far as, um, you know, dose reductions when appropriate for your quality of life and side effects. You know, when we looked at trials, when I'm thinking specifically the PARP inhibitor trials and the CDK inhibitor trials, a large portion of patients in both of these classes of drugs needed a dose reduction or a dose delay. And yet, how well the drug worked didn't change if you had that dose reduction or dose delay. So I think that um, you know those aspects of trials are really important when you're presenting that to a patient. This has all been really helpful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the BreastCancer.org podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To share your thoughts about this or any episode, email us at podcast at breastcancer.org or leave feedback on the podcast episode landing page on our website. And remember, you can find a lot more information about breast cancer at breastcancer.org. And you can connect with thousands of people affected by breast cancer by joining our online community.